It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Harman Institute. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of Shalom Hartman Institute North America, and we're recording here today on Wednesday, June 10th, 2020. Uh, before I introduce today's show, I want to direct your attention to a huge array of summer programming from the Shalom Hartman Institute uh, for registration is already open for a program called All Together Now, Jewish Ideas for This Moment. Over 90 faculty, over 250 classes, all free online throughout the summer for rabbis, lay leaders, college students, high school students, etc. You can find all that information on shalomhartman.org. I'm really excited today to be joined by two friends and colleagues to talk about today's topic, which is going to be about Israel-Palestine and what appears to be the promise of or the threat of annexation as the next main move uh, in this conflict. Let me introduce them, and then I'm going to ask them a, a warm-up question, and then we'll, we'll jump in. My two guests today are Tamara Kaufman-Wittes, a senior fellow at the Center for Middle East Policy at Brookings, focuses on U.S. policy in the Middle East, previously served as a Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs from 2009 to 2012, co-host of Rational Security, a weekly podcast on foreign policy and national security issues, and currently writing a book, which sounds amazing because that is a great title, at least, <laughs> Our SOBs on the Tangled History of America's Ties to Autocratic Allies. And uh, Michael Koplow is the Policy Director for the Israel Policy Forum uh, before coming to Israel Policy Forum was the founding program director of the Israel Institute, writes extensively uh, and speaks extensively on uh, Middle East policy, Israel-Palestine, uh, and, um, and you can find a lot of his writing on the Israel Policy Forum site, um, and we'll talk about some of it today, including the Annexation Watch section of the website, which has been tracking and monitoring this uh, this whole story. Um, so first of all, thanks both of you for being here. It's a busy time of year on all of the issues that we uh, we care about. Let me just ask you, um, we were going to meet last week and talk about annexation. It turns out there were other things going on in America, and so it felt uh, it felt important for this podcast to pivot into that conversation. But I'm curious to hear how both of you are kind of holding up in this American moment right now, and, um, and in particular, if there's anything you want to recommend to our listeners that you're reading or watching right now about American democracy, about race in America, racial justice, um, that'll be a good way for us to, to get started. Uh, Tamara? Sure. So I'll start by saying um, this has been a week that's given me the opportunity to uh, continue and expand a lot of conversations that we're having both internally at the Brookings Institution, but also with a new NGO that I helped found about a year ago 
called the Leadership Council for Women and National Security. And that's all about gender inclusion in the national security field where I work. But we really can't talk about inclusion for women without also talking about inclusion of other marginalized groups. And so we've spent a lot of time over the last week thinking about how we concretely, consciously integrate the concerns and the unique impediments faced by Black women and women of color in our sector of national security policy. And so that's been a very constructive conversation. I think the other thing that I've really been thinking about uh, beyond the, the necessity of continuing to struggle over my role in combating institutional racism in the country is the dynamic between civil society and formal politics. This is something I've always been fascinated by. But the past week was a really good example of uh, our institutional leadership in the White House um, almost pitching us into an abyss of crisis uh, and civil society standing up and saying no. Peaceful protesters, important uh, voices, uh, national voices, getting everybody to step back from the brink. So to me, that was really powerful. I'll say I've, I've been having a very difficult time um, because, as you as you point out, there is so much going on uh, in, in this country. Um, and the, the nature of my job is to focus on what's going on somewhere else. I have found it increasingly, uh, increasingly difficult to focus on my on my day job um and and as my day job also uh, is dealing with uh, you know what what may be a crisis uh, inside of inside of Israel and Palestine while we have so many pressing problems right here in in the macro sense for sure but even just within my own house of explaining to my children who are 10 8 and 5 um what is going on outside of outside of their their door and and beyond their backyard which is basically what they've been confined to now for for three months. One of the things I've been thinking about a lot is how we how we rank order our our commitments, our personal commitments and also our, our ideological commitments, both because of you know this issue that I'm having with here versus versus there. But I'd say also within the, the Jewish community uh, in the last couple of weeks, there has been this conversation about Black Lives Matter and how it relates to Israel and to and to things that um, different groups within uh, the larger constellation of, of Black Lives Matter have have uh, related to Zionism, and how do we kind of resolve these resolve these contradictions and figure out um, how to how to order our priorities and 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 you know when we when we're willing to make compromises and when not and when we're willing to say something is is so important that it should override some of the other uh, considerations we may have had in the past. Yeah, maybe we'll come back to it a little bit later. Actually, certainly there was uh, there was significant protest, actually, relatively speaking, in Israel around uh, the murder by a police officer of a young Palestinian man, uh, defenseless, uh, unarmed young Palestinian man. And so there was an instinct towards kind of correlation, police brutality, police violence, questions of race. There is some version of, of the way that that gets done, which is obviously sloppy, right? Race here is race there. Um, and there are also versions of the attempt to map one story onto another, which is also kind of narcissistic. Like, how do I make this story about me uh, as American Jews? Let's jump into the annexation question and uh, and take for granted that we and our listeners, it's not just our job to focus on Israel-Palestine, too, but um, but that there can be multiple 
uh, major issues going on in the world at the same time. So I'll do a, a, just a brief kind of readout of where we are news-wise, and then both of you can correct me about what I get wrong on it. The Israeli government has been, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu in particular, has, has advanced uh, the goal of bringing to his cabinet on July 1 a proposed annexation plan. This was a promised uh, promised message during the campaign. Turns out to have been apparently electorally useful, uh, at least for some segment of the Israeli electorate, electing Netanyahu on the promise of annexation. And I think more significantly turns out to be a demand that was not considered to be uh, toxic to his coalition partners. Uh, that was kind of one of the big surprises of the coalition assembly process, which was that parties to Netanyahu's uh, putative left, uh, where, where there might have been a line drawn of, no, we're, we're only joining the government uh, without an annexation plan, uh, it turned out to have been a perfectly legitimate negotiation. Um, that said, there is actually, it seems to be very little uh, publicly available about what that proposed annexation plan looked like. At one time, uh, it was talked about as being essentially annexing Jewish settlements and perhaps some adjacent territory around Jewish settlements in order to make uh, possible, you know, annexing those pieces, but then not to be, not to like disappear into the morass. Um, now there's talk of Jordan Valley annexation, which actually constitutes close to one third uh, of the West Bank and seems to operate with a very different motivation. Settlements are ostensibly about populations. Jordan Valley seems to be much more about Israel's security. And some confusion also about the American role in this whole story, uh, where what had looked like for this whole uh, Trump administration, a kind of uh, a blank check for the Netanyahu administration to push forward this policy. Certainly we saw that with the embassy relocation, etc. Now appears to be that the American administration wants any annexation process to happen in concert with the Trump peace plan, Trump or Kushner peace plan, whatever you want to call it, which would suggest that doing this step of annexation makes requirements on Israel that, uh, that some Israelis aren't comfortable with. And the most jarring uh, set of news last week was um, hearing some settler leaders now rejecting the annexation plan because they feel that by accepting a piece of the Trump-Kushner peace plan, it means that they have to kind of buy the whole cow. What did I get right? What did I get wrong? What other data points do you want to bring in before we kind of get into the what is this about question? Look, I'm not going to quibble with any of your facts, Yehuda, and, and Michael is the expert on the day-to-day of Israeli politics. So if he wants to make corrections, I will let him do that. I will, though, just highlight one phrase you used in talking about the surprising acquiescence of the blue and white party to this annexation timeline in the coalition agreement. You called it, it seemed like a perfectly legitimate negotiation. And I do think it's worth um, casting our minds back a month or so to the final throws of the coalition formation. This was after three rounds of inconclusive Israeli elections. And it was already clear that a fourth round would likely severely disadvantage blue and white uh, relative to Netanyahu. And so Benny Gantz, the leader of, of blue and white, was essentially facing an existential crisis. If he wasn't able to form a government himself, he was either going to go into Netanyahu's government or he was going to go to fourth elections where he was pretty sure he was going to lose. And given that equation, he decided not to allow annexation to become uh, existential in the coalition negotiations. 
Um, so I don't think it was that blue and white was like, oh, yeah, maybe this isn't such a bad idea after all. Um, I think there are mixed views within blue and white over annexation. But bottom line is, I, I think they just weren't willing to let it get in the way. And this goes to a broader point I hope we'll be able to talk about, which is that there is so much about the reality of deciding on and implementing annexation in the West Bank that Israelis have not talked about. There is just a huge debate to be had about this that has not yet been opened. I'll add that I think um, everything everything that, uh, that, that Tammy just said, I agree with 100%. And I think part of it is explained by the fact that there are different types of opposition to annexation. One type of opposition is an ideological opposition. Um, and one type, one type of opposition is a pragmatic one. And I think that to the extent that Gantz and Ashkenazi oppose annexation, it's entirely on pragmatic terms. And so they are, they are open, I think, and they, I think they always have been open to some form of it, depending on what it looks like and depending on the extent to which they convince themselves that it can be, it can be managed without causing a disaster. Um, on, on the question of kind of murkiness, um, you know, Yehuda, you, you mentioned that um, it's, it's not entirely clear what annexation is going to look like. Um, I think that part of that murkiness is, is by design. I think part of that murkiness is over the fact that Netanyahu himself probably probably doesn't know what he wants to do. There, there's a, a new report just this morning that clearly was leaked from Netanyahu himself that he's contemplating now annexing Gush Etzion, Mala, Dumin, and Ariel and leaving the rest for, for another date. I'd be surprised if that comports with the Trump map, but I think it's Netanyahu probably floating a trial balloon and seeing how people react to it. Um, and, and as you point out, I think there's also murkiness within the White House itself, where there are pretty, at least clear to me, um, pretty clearly two camps. One camp that wants to push ahead with it, um, one is push ahead with it right away, literally on the day the Trump plan was released. And one camp that wants to nest the annexation part of it in this larger idea of a, of a peace plan that may or may not come to fruition. So I, I think that every single actor in this is still kind of feeling around in the dark and deciding what they want to do, what they think, what makes sense, what doesn't make sense, which is why it's, it's very difficult to, to, to wrap, wrap heads around this. And then the, the last point on, on this issue of murkiness, and, and this goes to terminology. So when I talk about this, I use the term annexation. You did as well. The Israeli government has been very adamant um, publicly and behind the scenes um, in the last month or two, that annexation is not a term that should be that should be used, and that too is 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 related to murkiness because when you look at polls of Israelis, how they respond in terms of whether or not they support this really depends on what they think you're calling it, um, because what they think you're calling it frames in their minds different scenarios, and so if you call it annexation versus calling it application of Israeli sovereignty versus extension of Israeli law you get very different responses as to whether it's good or bad. And so I think that um, some of the murkiness involved is actually by design, um, because some of these things are more popular than others, even if they all actually mean the same thing in practice. Right. And you, you, you say that on the Annexation Watch site uh, at IPF, which is that beware of terminology like applying Israeli sovereignty to parts of the West Bank, because it is it is essentially avoidant of what are the actual legal and political consequences. And the reason to avoid using the term annexation is because the Israeli government doesn't dispute that annexing territories occupied during war is actually illegal by international law. So if I say I'm not doing it, then I can, I can skid under that. I guess let me start with um, just a, a kind of devil's advocate question, but it's something I actually haven't fully sorted out. 
in practical terms, Saeed Erekat said this in February of this year, that there exists a de facto annexation already. So Israel is basically enacting de jure annexation of something that is de facto annexed. Most Israelis would say, with respect to Gush Etzion, Ariel, and other places, that there also has been de facto annexation. What actually... So if you're talking about... Uh, major changes in the map. Let's leave aside the Jordan Valley for a second. But the major settlements um, that even the Oslo process acknowledged were ultimately going to have to be part of Israel in one way or another. You weren't going to involve a major population transfer from those settlements. They are culturally part of Israel. Israelis don't, you know, like don't fully differentiate when it comes to those major settlement blocks between living inside and outside the Green Line, unless you're a significant ideologue on these questions. Why would that be a big deal? the annexation of Gush Etzion and Ariel. And in fact, might there be even an argument that the honesty of enacting annex- annexation enables Israeli law to get past what has been a weird gap between functional annexation in these places, but actually legal differences in status between what it means to live in a settlement and what it means to live in Cholon or a Tel Aviv uh, suburb. Like what actually, why does it matter? So, a few reasons. Um, so there are changes on the ground that will come into play if annexation happens. So even in a place like Gush Etzion, which, uh, you know, if you're, if you're sitting in, in Alon's foot, you don't feel like you're sitting in some sort of extra, extra legal, <laughs> extra legal uh, territory anywhere. Um, you know, but even in places like that, planning processes for, for permits, um, construction of roads, all of that doesn't happen directly under the housing ministry, the transportation ministry, all that is still subject to um, IDF military control. So if you're living in one of those places, annexation actually matters to you a lot because it will make your life um, subject to, uh, I was going to say less red tape, but a different sort of red tape. And in other words, that could be good news, right? If, if you're an Israeli living there, for sure. And if you're the Israeli government that now doesn't have basically a housing department that is parsed between military control and civilian control. Yes, I think in those places, yes, it makes that easier for the Israelis. Um, but the bigger issue for me is that process matters, right? And so taking these places that we say um, everybody knows one day they're going to be part of Israel, right? These are you know the, the land swaps that, that everybody can point to on a map and, and that there are very few Palestinians living there and these will be part of Israel. So why not just do it today? Once you break that seal and you say, we're not going to adhere to the process that was established and has basically reigned for a quarter century, we're just going to, we're going to throw out the idea of negotiations. We're going to throw out the idea that these have to be swapped concurrently. We're going to throw out the idea that they have to be swapped in in equal amounts. It makes it much easier to go to the next stage, which will be more problematic. So I think already... For instance, the Trump plan took this idea of land swaps, right? And it said, okay, we have land swaps. It's not one-to-one. It's 30% to 14%. And they don't have to happen together. The Israelis get to take their 30% right away. And then the Palestinians will get their 14% in return, maybe in four years, if they adhere to a long and exhaustive set of conditions. Um, But hey, land swaps. Um, I think that if you do it that way, it then makes it easier to do the next problematic step, whether that's saying, oh, okay, there are Palestinians here. You know, we've extended sovereignty or or annexed this place. The Palestinians here, they can be permanent residents. They don't have to be citizens. Um, And that makes it easier to do the next step and the next step. And so I think that process here matters. And if we throw out the process and just say, these are consensus Israeli uh, towns and communities, just take them now. There's no way in my mind that it ends there. You know, once once you break that seal, it's much easier to keep on going to far more problematic things. 
So I, I think Michael just laid out in a very practical sense sort of what it would what it would feel like, what it would mean at the level of individuals. I want to zoom out for just a minute and say, let me say first, I think we need to be clear that the Trump administration's plan, which situates annexation as part of a process that includes this uh potential for what they call a Palestinian state four years down the road, if, 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 that's not going to be implemented. And it's not going to be implemented because the Palestinians reject it. So any annexation that goes forward, and particularly an annexation that goes forward right now, is going to be entirely unilateral. It's not part of a negotiating process. It's not part of a tit for tat. Uh, there's no quid pro quo. It's just Israeli annexation. So let's accept that. What that means um, at, at sort of the geopolitical level and at the level of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is that unilateral declaration of intent. We do not intend to negotiate the outcome of what happens to this territory with you. We agreed to do that in 1993. We've changed our mind. We're not going to do that anymore. We're going to decide ourselves. So that's the first thing that it means. And then the second thing it means, I think, that is really very different, just as that is very different. We have to remember the distinction between the territory and the population. So the Israelis that are living in settlements beyond the Green Line are still Israeli citizens. They have rights under Israeli law. When they commit a crime, they're tried in Israeli courts as Israeli citizens. Palestinians are dealt with in military courts as non-citizens. The territory, however, is dealt with as non-Israeli territory. So as Michael was saying, if you want to build a house, you go through the military to get your permit, not through civilian authority. But that distinction between territory and people breaks down on the question of whether I have a right to be there. And this is exactly why settlers want annexation so much and exactly why Palestinians are so resolutely opposed to it. Because to, to annex the territory, the Israeli government is giving to settlers the ability to say for the first time, I have a right to be here. I have a legal right to be here. This is my country. Just like I can say to the border guard at Kennedy Airport, I have a right to be let into the United States. You cannot deny me entry. Right. And that's not been the status of the settlements in Israel from 1967. They were established by the government or at the forbearance of the government. You were allowed to be there because the government let you stay. And having a right to be there, that's something very different. Likewise for Palestinians, you know, as long as this land is still in dispute, as long as it's something still to be negotiated, I can say I have a right to walk down the, the Shahada Street in Hebron. And if you think I shouldn't be able to do that, we're going to have to talk about that because that's my right. But once the annexation you know, removes that possibility, I can no longer claim that right in practice. I mean, this reminds me of a, of a line from my colleague, Tal Becker, who you both know, which is you can't negotiate the cake while you're eating the cake. Part of the point is like you, you retain it. And if that, I mean, that's, I think, what you're trying to say, Tammy, which is you hold it essentially without changing the status in order to be able to bring about a negotiation. But part of me looks at this and says, there hasn't really been negotiations since Oslo. Or, in fact, there's been basically collective rejection of a lot of the framework of Oslo. So that doesn't, I, I don't, that, I would much rather see 
a kind of unilateralism of Israeli policy, you know, if, if to the extent that Israelis see this as a, as a unilateral step, I would much rather see a unilateral approach of Israeli policy that was in service of the Oslo outcomes as opposed to undermining the Oslo outcomes. Or, or set aside Oslo, uh, a unilateralism in Israeli policy that was in service of a negotiated resolution of any kind in any framework, as opposed to a unilateral policy decision that makes negotiation harder and less likely. For decades, Jewish leaders from across North America have traveled to Mechon Hartman in Israel to learn alongside inspiring faculty and meet old and new friends in the warmth of the Jerusalem summer. This year, we won't be able to gather in Jerusalem, but we can still gather. And this summer, we are opening the doors of our Bet Midrash and inviting everyone inside. All together now, Jewish Ideas for This Moment is a month-long virtual celebration of ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. Join hundreds of Jewish leaders online between June 29th and July 23rd as over 50 of our scholars from Israel and North America address the moral and theological questions facing us in this moment. For more information and to register free of charge, go to bit.ly slash Hartman Summer. We could talk about policy for a long time. You're both very good at it. There's a whole piece of this that I'm actually interested in exploring, which is also about identity, about Jews, and about America. There's another consequence that comes to this, which I think is uh, where I've seen in the American Jewish community more anxiety than elsewhere. It may not be true about Israelis. It may not be true about Palestinians, which is this is not about um, the fears are not about Israeli survival, Palestinian survival, but about democracy. And here, um, you know, Yochanan Plesner from uh, Israel Democracy Institute um, has a piece where he says he, he says Israel's in a democracy recession, and good news, bad news, so is a lot of the world. <laughs> um, so we're, we're essentially part of that process. But Tammy, you wrote um, in March um, that you you haven't found yet in your research substantial institutional change that in, indicates democratic backsliding. That doesn't mean that there can't be other markers of the demise of democracy. But it does seem to me that part of the anxiety, especially for American Jews, I don't, I don't want to make it clinical, part of the concern for American Jews about annexation is not just this is bad for Palestinians, or as IPF is arguing, it's bad for Israeli security, but it basically undermines Israel's ability to call itself a Jewish democratic state. Once you have people legally under your control who you haven't enfranchised, um, you can't call yourself a democracy. We can talk about the apartheid word, etc. I guess I'm curious to hear from both of you kind of how you engage with that with that democracy question, um, because I do think it is different for that's an identity challenge for American Jews, because it's less I'm, it's less that I'm concerned about the people who are on the ground. It's more like, how do I stay in relationship to something when part of the reason all along that I've been connected to it is because it cohered to my narrative of what of what Israel is supposed to be? I wonder whether that matters um, first. I mean, it doesn't really matter for Israelis and Palestinians. And I'm also curious just how you position yourself relative to this to this story of, of Israeli democracy. Oof. Well, um, so when I... That's an oi question, Yehuda. Um, so when I published that paper a year ago, I said, yeah, we don't see democratic decline in the institutions, in the laws, the legal and institutional basis of Israeli democracy. But I did see a lot of danger signs in the discourse in Israeli democracy, in the degree of polarization, the degree of demonization, exclusionary rhetoric about political opponents, that sort of thing. And and to my mind, that's only gotten worse. But there is a real institutional problem when you have, as you said, people who are under your control, under your permanent control, 
that you do not grant equal rights uh, and you don't grant them equal access to the law or equal representation. That's a fundamental democratic problem. That is the democratic problem that South Africa had. (laughs) And that is the democratic problem that Israel will face if it takes the view that it permanently wants to um, have control over the envelope of, you know, the Jordan Valley and all the external borders and Palestinians will live in these isolated enclaves and they can only move, you know, with the facilitation. And part of the annexation is also setting aside the legal framework that has allowed Israel to escape this question so far which is that it accepts the obligations of being an occupying power, even though it doesn't necessarily accept the legal, the legal status of the land under the Geneva Conventions, which is a, it's an international law argument. But the bottom line is there is this notion that this is temporary. It's going to be resolved through negotiations. And so we are not right now facing a democratic problem because it's not designed to be permanent. Once it's designed to be permanent, we have a democratic problem. You know, um, I don't think that's only a problem for American Jews because of shared values. It is a problem for American Jews because of shared values. It's a problem for all Americans because of shared values. And we have a lot of public opinion data from my colleague Shibli Telhami demonstrating that Americans, Republicans, Democrats, independents, young, old, white, black, if there is no two-state outcome, what is their preferred outcome? Majorities, one state equal rights. Why? Because we're Americans. That's what we believe in, right? So this isn't just a thing for American Jews. But I also think that it's a problem for Israelis, who value their democracy. And I think that the resilience of Israeli democracy has been evident in this last year of endless elections and really polarized politics. Turnout was, you know, on the increase. It's amazing. Even those Israelis who feel most disadvantaged and disenfranchised in the current politics, the 20% of Israel citizens who are Arab, voted in higher and higher rates because they buy into Israel's democracy. You create that democratic problem, that's a problem for Israel, as well as for all the rest of us. So it certainly matters to me um, personally enormously. A a Zionism in which you have to choose between Jewish Israel or democratic Israel is is not a Zionism that is is going to be strong or even functional for for very long and so much of so much of the the work that that I do I'm personally invested in because I don't want to have to get to to that that question I don't want to have to get to a point where that's a question that that must be answered and so you know I, I certainly feel personally invested in it but I also think that there is a difference between American views of democracy and Israeli views of democracy um I think that Israelis tend to put a lot more focus on democracy as procedural. And so if an elected Israeli government that has, you know, the support of a, a, a coalition that has the support of a majority of Israelis decide this is something that Israel should do, I think for many, if not most Israelis, that is a democratic decision that may carry with it some problems, but largely doesn't do anything to compromise Israel's democracy. And this is a large generalization. Of course, not all Israelis will feel this way, but I think that many, many will. I think that for Americans, 
especially for American Jews. I think we tend to view democracy not simply as something that is procedural, but also as something that is substantive, right? The notion of liberal democracy versus electoral democracy. And I think that for um, Americans, even if you know a, a democratically elected Israeli government does this with the support of a majority of, uh, of Israelis, and, and even if it were to do it through a referendum, which is not on the table at the moment, I think for many Americans, it still would not look or feel or be democratic because of the position in which it places Palestinians. And I think that, um, you know, that drives some of this as well. And again, doesn't mean it's not a concern for, for Israelis at all, but I think that um, it tends to be more of a concern in a lot of ways here than than it is there, which is why many of the, the most um, anguished voices against this, and again, not to take anything away from, from my, my Israeli colleagues, many of whom are very impassioned, and obviously this will impact them um, in a real way more than it will me, but I think that um, a lot of the, the most impassioned voices against this are coming from the United States versus Israel for, for this reason. You know, a different way to, to describe procedural versus substantive in terms of these two cultures in relationship to democracy might be to actually also look at the difference between the way in which Israeli Judaism and American Judaism has internalized democracy, where Israeli Judaism seems to treat democracy as the framework within which Jewish sovereignty is made manifest. And American Jews, and I, this is, one, I think, one of the most under-researched pieces of American Jewish life, American Jews are actually the place where the experiment of Judaism and democracy as a hybrid discourse has been much more central to American Jews than we've, we've talked about or cared about. So the, there's an inseparability, I think, for many American Jews of Judaism and democracy in ways that are quite different for Israelis, who actually tend to actually think they have a good democracy. Because you're right, it's about, you know, the, the right to vote, uh, majority rule. Um, you know, somebody said something to me two years ago, major kind of player in Jewish philanthropy, a powerful person. And when, when this person said this to me, I actually straight up gasped, and I can't stop thinking about it, and I'd love to hear what your thoughts are. This person said, uh, we made a mistake in organized Jewish communal life about building support for Israel for the next generation, because we tied it to Israel as a Jewish and democratic state. We should never have done that because it ain't going to be a Jewish democratic state. This person wasn't naive. They're right of center in some ways, but incredibly conscious about occupation and basically was like, that was a mistake. What we should have done was figure out how do we inculcate love and support for Israel, regardless of whether it's a democracy, to be prepared for the inevitability that it won't be. And I, you can tell why I gasped. I was like, well, that is nuts. And I'm not sure that the person was totally wrong if the game is ultimately keeping people in support for Israel. You might argue that it, that very relationship to Israel should entirely be conditional on what Israel does. I'm curious where you sit on the kind of Hannah Arendt map. Having had similar conversations with uh, with major American Jewish philanthropists, I, I'm willing to bet that I, that I, I can guess who, although I won't. Um, but I think that I think that that view, as you say, it's not it's not a naive view, right? And it's not even a wrong view if, if your goal is American Jewish support for Israel come hell or high water. I think where it misses the point is that the American Jewish community, institutions, philanthropists, religious leaders, political leaders, whatever group we want to we want to we want to put this on, um, all of them actually, I don't think are going to be able to force American Jewish support for Israel in the absence of Israel as Jewish and democratic. I think that if if the thrust of American Jewish philanthropy had been to try to tie support for Israel just to the Jewish aspect, I think that we would see a much weaker 
uh, attachment to Zionism than we see from the American Jewish community today. And, and I think that that's actually what makes annexation on this side of the ocean such a dangerous thing. I, I desperately worry that this decades-long phenomenon of American Zionism, which was not the case before 1948 and really has been enabled by this idea of Israel as both Jewish and democratic, um, is not going to persist in the wake of annexation. And I think it's going to, you know, aside from being a huge wake-up call to American Jewish institutions, I think it's going to be an enormous wedge bigger than anything we have seen in the American Jewish community, because there are people who are going to absolutely feel the same way that philanthropist does, that the priority here is Israel is a Jewish state, and we now have to direct all of our energies into making sure people support that. And there are going to be maybe even greater numbers of American Jews who aren't willing to aren't willing to, to walk that line. So I think Michael spoke very effectively to the push away that annexation or in general that a lack of progress toward resolving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and ending the occupation, that the push that creates on American Jewish connection to Israel. Um, it's a negative. But there's another component of this, and you know, this is something that, that you've spent a lot more time thinking about than I have, but that that I really see manifesting a lot, which is, you know. These two great experiments in modern Jewish life are both really compelling on their own terms. American Judaism is really compelling on its own terms to a lot of American Jews, especially younger American Jews, without any direct organic connection to Israel at all. So there's, it has a pull of its own, and that means that there has to be a reason why Israel matters to you other than history other than, you know, a, a sense of like it's a backstop for Jewish survival. I mean, if Israel isn't a democracy, if Israel isn't a society that both at the political level, but also at the societal level manifests my, you know, American and therefore liberal in some sense, Jewish understanding, then it's a Jewish state l'shemma, right? <laughs> like, what? Is it just a backstop for Jewish survival? Well, if that's all it is, I, I don't feel like I need that a lot. I think that that's, that's the sense that a lot of American Jews would have. And so it's not just the push. It's also the pull of American Judaism itself um, that maybe just Israel isn't central to it. It's not necessary to it for a lot of people. They have very rich Jewish lives, and they don't even see in Israeli society an Israeli version of the things that they enjoy and the richness of their American Jewish life, if we're talking about, you know, religious pluralism and stuff. So I think you have to look at both halves of the Jewish equation. Then when you get to the broader American public, though, if it's not a democracy, forget about it. Forget about it. Yeah, although, I mean, I think some would argue about the American political map that given that there's a part of the American political app that, that map that is very pro-Israel and um, and very comfortable with authoritarian versions of democracy at home, that, you know, that, that may not, <laughs> there's no cognitive dissonance there. Um, and in fact, a great kinship between the political culture between these two places. I guess the one thing I, I, I resist a little bit, Tammy, about your characterization of if it's not a democracy, then, then it's merely a backstop for, for survival. 
one of the undercapitalized places in American Jewish education around Israel and relationship to Israel is the stuff of Israel that's not political at all, which is about cultural production, a, a totally new reinvented Judaism of the 20th and now 21st centuries. So those are, those are objects or tools of tremendous value to, you know, to those of us who belong to this people who identify with this religious tradition that I know many of my Israeli friends who are incredibly cynical about their politics still feel a tremendous amount of national pride or connection to the state that is not about that. So I, that might be exploitable, but I, I kind of share your sense that there's only there's a limit about how that can reach in terms of a compelling Zionism if people feel that the, the politics of the project are fundamentally corrupt. Let me ask, though, you know, we're, we're kindred spirits here, right? I know I know both of you. There's not... We don't represent a huge uh, political spectrum uh, in the American <laughs> Jewish community or relationship to Israel, but that, it's still rich. There are those who argue that this is a threshold issue, annexation is a threshold issue, and that therefore the language has to change. We have to start using the term apartheid um, in reference to uh, the West Bank, or that liberal Zionism, which you know, is one of these things that people like to declare dead, um, you know, like Judaism also, by the way, <laughs> that liberal Zionism has to start embracing much more radical theories of political change, BDS, what have you, or um, do you do you think that's actually realistic? It's going to happen? I, I'll tell you, my, my bias is that I'm suspicious, in part because I think the American Jewish left is anyway distracted by what's actually going on in America, which turns out might be worse, and actually really implicates Jewish lives in America much more than the change of status on the ground in Israel. Uh, we saw this at Hartman. We prepared a tremendous amount of material for some spring of 2017 on college campuses, expecting 50 years of occupation to be a big issue. And it turns out, like, after the Trump election in 2016, like, who cared, right, about 50 years of occupation? Do you think that this is a threshold issue for large populations? And and I guess I'm curious, does it become a threshold issue for for you individually? So I guess I'll say first that even if annexation goes forward, I do not accept the notion that, you know, that's it, game over. No, no negotiated conflict resolution, no two-state solution is ever possible. You know, a lot of Israeli politicians said they would never give up the Sinai, and they gave up the Sinai in exchange for peace with Egypt— Israel applied uh, its law in the Golan long, long ago and negotiated over the Golan with the Syrian government on multiple occasions. So even annexation does not eliminate the possibility of negotiated territorial compromise, which is something that Israelis need to take account of and debate. That's part of the conversation that is not taking place. Um, so is it a threshold issue for me personally? No, because... There's still a possibility for negotiated resolution. It's just a lot harder, and a lot of people are a lot more miserable in the meantime. But also because, look, this is an identity conflict. These are two peoples with two national narratives that tie them to the same piece of territory. Neither one of these peoples is going to disappear. That means this conflict is going to continue until the two of them come to terms about how to handle that. So this this means the conflict enters a new phase. I think a dark phase, a miserable phase, a painful phase. It's a new phase of conflict. That's what it means. So for me, it's not that kind of threshold issue. Like I give up. Nope, I don't give up. I believe in conflict resolution. Got to keep working the problem. Um, but I, I think that what you're likely to see in the American Jewish community is 
a lot of people just checking out. Just, you know, and I think that we've seen that to a certain extent in the last several decades anyway, but I think you're likely to see a lot more. Um, And so to the extent that the organized Jewish community or Jewish institutions were able to rely on a certain degree of passive support for Israel, you know, or if Israel was attacked, people would want to defend it. I think that's the stuff that's going to get eroded. Yeah, I I, I agree. Um... This may sound funny coming coming from from me as as the policy director of an organization that I'm pretty sure has been talking about annexation um, longer and louder than any other organization in, in the U.S. It's not a threshold issue precisely because of what of what Tammy says. Things can always be rolled back. Um, it's not going to force this choice about Israel as Jewish or democratic on on you know the the first day after annexation. You know, there will still be there will still be lots of lots of work left to do. And I think that it 100 percent is the step toward a a, a a bloodier phase in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, but ultimately, the logic, the logic behind liberal Zionism is that two states is, is inevitable because the, the options, the other options are just not workable or sustainable in the long term. And so even if there is something else that takes takes the forefront temporarily, I know almost nobody who thinks that a single democratic state is something that Israelis are just going to allow. I know of almost nobody who thinks that a, a Jewish but non-democratic state is sustainable for Israelis over the long term. So I, I think that I think that other paths will always be available. That's that that's a. But B, liberal Zionism is going to be around. But as I said before, I think that it will create a reckoning, annexation will, for Zionism writ large in the United States. And while I I don't see liberal Zionism transforming in a huge way and embracing um, different different tactics or or goals, I think that there is definitely going to be a resurgence of anti-Zionism or or non-Zionism or basically uh antipathy toward 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 zionism or, or apathy rather toward zionism and that that will be a big threat to american jewish communal life when we talk about israel programming um you know you, you talked about the cultural aspect right there's sort of nothing easier than israeli film night uh you know is israeli food night right programming surrounding israeli culture and in the wake of annexation even that kind of stuff i think is going to become more controversial so um, it will cause a reckoning here in the American Jewish community, and I don't think anybody should um, should fool themselves about that. Yeah, well, I am, I'm grateful to hear both of you uh, speak in those terms. Uh, Michael, you wrote uh, last month on a piece called Don't Mistake the Immediate for the Important, that you said if one camp predicts catastrophic results from a specific policy and they don't immediately manifest, the other camp seizes upon this as evidence that the, to argue that the policy itself was flawless. And I think that that's a really good caution to say, you know, we don't have to look for, you know, it almost, it, what it sometimes does is it makes people who are opposed to a policy almost wish for violence because it'll kind of perversely prove that like this was a dangerous value proposition, even though what we're talking about is long-term sustained, a long-term sustained problem that is by definition harder to fight against. Um, and, and also perhaps more important. So I'm grateful for both of you. Um, and partly I, I wanted to say I'm grateful for both of you because you're very smart and you know a lot about the, about Israel Palestine from a policy standpoint. So that when we, when we in, a, in the Jewish communal side of things are, are trying to position some of these conversations about what it means to be in relationship to this, you know, it's, it's really critical that that not be an entirely affective conversation about what it means to be in relationship to a conflict that actually implicates the role, the meaning of Israel to American Jews that, and I'm very taken by the, 
the kind of prosaic willingness to engage with what are the security and democracy questions that are really at stake here, um, both to enable us to, you know, sustain and maintain this relationship, but to also see it as not just in the kind of narcissistic interest for like what's good for us as American Jews, but ultimately what's at play for for Israelis and Palestinians. So thanks, uh, thanks to our listeners for being with us this week, and special thanks to Tamara Kaufman-Wittis and Michael Koplow. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced and edited this week by David C. Kalman. Our managing producer is Dan Friedman, with music provided by So Called. In addition to the podcast, recordings of Identity Crisis are streamed on Facebook through Jewish Live. Please check our Facebook page for details about future recording times. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online, shalomhartman.org. We want to know what you think about the show. You can write us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, and wherever else podcasts are available. See you next week. We hope you do study with us this summer uh, at Hartman Online, and thanks so much for listening.